We'll begin our lunch and learn number 42, thank God. So this elderly individual is driving down the highway and his phone rings and he answers the call and it's his wife on the line and her voice, there's a sense of urgency and she tells him, Herman, I was listening to the radio and they said that there's a car driving backwards on the highway in the wrong direction, so be very careful. And he says, one car? Hundreds of cars are driving backwards. <laughs> <laughs> there's a halacha that we see in source one. Can you pass this around? How to Brian today? So if we take a look, <coughs> if we take a look in source number one, we just read the first couple of words. The Talmud tells us, one who reads the Megillah backwards has not fulfilled his obligation. Talking about going backwards. So this. Thursday, Wednesday night, and Thursday for 24 hours is the holiday of Purim. And the book that tells us the story of Purim is called the Megillah. There's an expression, the whole Megillah, the Gansa Megillah. Where does it come from? Because one of the mitzvahs of Purim, the way we observe the holiday, is that we read the Megillah by night. That's this year, Wednesday evening after nightfall, as well as Thursday day before nightfall, anytime before nightfall. We hear the story of the Megillah, and the halacha is, the law is, we need to hear every single word. Every single word we should pay attention and to hear. That's how the expression came about. The whole Megillah, the Gansa Megillah, if somebody missed a word, they have to hear, they should better hear the whole thing again. And here the halacha tells, the Talmud tells us, that one who reads the Megillah backwards has not fulfilled his obligation. What does it mean backwards? So the simple understanding of this of this teaching is that there are 10 chapters. What's the Megillah? The Megillah is also known as the book of Esther, <clears throat> which is one of the 24 books of the Torah. Right? We spoke many times. We have the five books of Moses. We have the eight books of the prophets. And we have the 11 books of the writings, scriptures, like Psalms and Proverbs. Those, those books are part of the scriptures. And the last book, the 24th book, is the book of Esther, which, in, which another... We, or it's called referred to as the Megillah. Megillah means something which is rolled, something which because it's it's a scroll that we roll. Megillah's Esther, the scroll of Esther, the book of Esther. This this book has ten chapters, and this Megillah, the book of Esther, is read twice every Purim. So if we read it not in the order of its being written, so there's chapter one to ten. If we read it backwards, you read chapter two and then chapter one. You do not fulfill your obligation. Talmud says we need to start with chapter 1 and end with the end of chapter 10. Then you have fulfilled your obligation. Comes along the Baal Shem Tov, the founder of Hasidus, and he says, continuing on in, in uh, Source 1, one who reads the book of Esther backwards, he explains it in a, in a, in a different kind of way, as, an, as the account of an event that happened thousands of years ago, has missed the entire point of the mitzvah of reading the Megillah. The story told by the Megillah is the story of our everyday lives in all times and under all circumstances. So he, he translates the, the wording of backwards, not just reading one chapter before the other chapter, not in the, in the right order, but when you hear the story of the Megillah, you read the Megillah and you read it backwards like something that happened, an old story that happened 2,500 years ago, then you missed the point. It's not just about reading a story that happened many, many hundreds of years ago that has nothing to do with us. We need to read the story as if it's happening now. The lessons and the themes, the ideas, the ideals of, of the story of the Megillah have to teach us every year how to live our lives. So let's look a little bit into the Megillah. We're not going to read the, the whole Megillah, but we'll look at some of the highlights of the story and see some of the lessons, how it applies to us so many years later. 
exactly what we're going to talk about. What is Purim exactly? The word Purim means lots, like making a a lot, meaning you make a raffle, you make you, you draw a lottery. That's what it means. And we'll see why it's called Purim, what exactly are we celebrating, how do we celebrate, and again, take the lessons of the story. So actually... <coughs> Yes. Let's begin with a couple questions. Who wrote it? Who wrote it? Who wrote in Megillah was written by Mordechai and Esther. We'll learn about these personalities. Mordechai, <coughs> who was the leader of the Jewish people at the time, Esther, and they wrote it, and it was written together with the Anshei Knesset Agdala, the men of the Great Assembly, which was 120 members of a uh, high courts. And together, they added this book to the Torah, and that was the last book, and that completed the 24 books of the Torah. <clears throat> okay, so let's begin with a couple questions. In all of the books of the Torah, you can imagine that God's name is found many, many times. But in the book of Esther, it's the only book that God's name is omitted. There's no mention of God's name in all ten chapters of the Megillah. And that's interesting. Why? Must be some deeper kind of meaning. Why God's name is not mentioned. Close miracles. Number two, the food that one of the foods that's customary to eat on Purim is Hamantashen. Anyone know why we eat Hamantashen on Purim? Hat? Haman's hat. His ears. Okay, in Hebrew it's called Ozne Haman, his ears. So he had triangular ears and he had a triangular hat. Interesting, because I, I haven't seen that and it's mentioned anywhere what kind of hat he wore. But, and anyways, why is that so significant? Haman died, as we see here. He was executed. Why would we... Okay, but it could be, but... Sounds like the Torah is not such, you know, just about hats. Must be something deeper. Why we eat hamantashen? And why do we get dressed up? Why do the kids get dressed up? You know, Halloween, they copy us. We didn't copy them. So why do we dress, why do the kids or why do people dress up on Purim? Well, simply, you can say, you know, it's festive, it's joyous, it's happy, it's a joyous holiday. But again, there must be something deeper. Anyone have any idea? Okay, so that will be our starting point. So let's take a look in source number two. The, the, the first verse of the Megillah. Just a little background. The Jewish people are in exile. The Jewish people came out of Egypt. They were in the desert and they came to the land of Israel for almost a thousand years living in Israel. They built the first temple, King David, King Solomon. First it was King Saul, King David, King Solomon. They had a beautiful temple, stood for 410 years. Came Nebuchadnezzar, who was a Babylonian king, ruler of the world, and he destroyed the first temple and he took the Jews and he brought them over to the east, from Israel over to the east, to Babylonia, Babel. And he resettled the Jewish people there for close to 60, 70 years. They weren't, they weren't slaves? Or were they weren't slaves, but they were exiled from their land. No, they weren't slaves. Originally, under, under the Babylonians, they were treated harshly, maybe not as you know, slaves, but they were, they were oppressed in different ways, especially uh, spiritual spiritually. But then, after the Babylonians, there was King Nebuchadnezzar, his son was a man named Evil Merudach, I'm not sure how they say it in English. He had a son, Belshazzar. And after the Babylonians came along the Persians. The Persians and the, they took over the kingdom. And the king at the time was King Ahasuerus. Source number two. Ready? Ready to learn the Megillah. It came to pass in the days of Ahasuerus, who ruled 127 provinces. 127 provinces. He was the ruler of the entire world, from Hoidu to Kush, from India until Ethiopia. That was the, pretty much the civilized world at the time. The king made a seven-day feast in the courtyard of the king's palace garden. Oh, thank you. And on the seventh day, when the king's heart was merry with wine, 
he ordered to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing the royal crown. Okay, now the Megillah again is written, was written under the rule of Ahasuerus. Even after the story of Purim happened, they were still under the rulership of King Ahasuerus, who was not a Jewish man. And therefore, when the Megillah was written by Mordechai and Esther, it was written really um, in codes, if you can say. And that's actually one of the reasons why the God's name is not mentioned, because it was written and all of the people of the time was written as a record record of what happened and people you know if god's name would be written in it would be desecrated by other people the non-jewish people but it wasn't originally just a jewish book it was a book written and it was under written under the rule of king akashver so they had to be very careful how to write the story not to offend him right so a lot of the story of the Megillah is not so clear in the verses, but it's explained in the Talmud and the Midrashim, and we'll try to bring a little bit of that. So what happened? He made a party. He made a party for seven days, and everybody was invited. Jews, non-Jews, everyone is invited to this party in the capital of the Persian kingdom, in Shushan, in the capital. What exactly was he celebrating? So one opinion is he was celebrating... The Jewish people were in exile and they were told by their prophets that they'll be in exile for 70 years mm -hmm. and then they will return to Israel and rebuild the temple. And Ahasuerus miscalculated the 70 years, but he, according to his calculation, the 70 years were up. And therefore he made a party celebrating his kingdom that the Jews are now fully under his reign. And if 70 years pass and the Jews did not go back up to Israel, it's never going to happen. The words of the prophet are untrue. So he made a party and he actually took out all the vessels of the temple that the kings had brought from Israel from the first temple and he dressed up like the high priest, it says, and he desecrated the, the holy vessels and the garments of the, of the high priest. And on the seventh day, after drinking for seven days, the king's heart was merry with wine and he ordered to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing the royal crown. Right? He wanted to show off his queen to all of the ministers and all the people there show off her beauty for she was really beautiful she was one of the most beautiful people that ever lived the Talmud says and he asked her he commanded her to come wearing the royal crown and the Talmud says only wearing the royal crown she should not be wearing anything else <laughs> you can imagine they were not very moral and neither was she Vashti would be happy to to comply However, source number three, Vashti refused to appear by the king's order, and the king grew furious. Memuchan, one of the ministers, declared before the king, let the king confer her royal title upon another woman who is better than she. Look at her, she's disobeying the king's command. The idea pleased the king and the ministers, and the king did as Memuchan had advised. So what happened here? Why did Vashti refuse to appear? She was, she was not exactly the most modest woman around. She, uh, she was willing to come, but Talmud says the miracle occurred and her body was filled with pimples and some say a tail grew from her and she was embarrassed to appear like that in front of the king and she got, instead of just saying, you know, I can't come, she sent nasty words to the king. She said, you are... Um, you know, Vashti was a great-granddaughter of Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of the Babylonian kingdom. Her father was Belshazzar. And Ahasuerus was, well, didn't have any royal blood. Ahasuerus was the horse boy. You know, he worked in the stable of, of, the, of Vashti's grandfather or father. But he was a mighty man and a, a charismatic person. And he won. He was very wealthy. And he, after the Babylonian kingdom was was won by the, by the Persian army, he and the previous Persian king died, he sort of uh, pushed himself up and became the king. So Vashti not just refused to appear, she mocked him saying, who are you? You're a nobody. I'm the one that has the royal blood and you're just special because of me. And obviously that offended Ahasuerus and Memuchan, which is another name for Haman, the Talmud says, his, name, his real name was Haman, and he came up with the idea that Vashti should be executed because... She disobeyed the king's command. And the king uh, complied. The king did as he advised. You can imagine he was quite drunk when he did so. And she was executed. 
What did they do? Uh, like chopped off head? Yes. It says they chopped her head off. Some sources say that Vashti was a relative of a cousin or something. Could be. Could be. But she definitely didn't like him <laughs> at this point. <laughs> okay. So, and that's the first point which is interesting because, because um, as we see that after the party, after seven days of the party, Achashverosh calmed down and he sobered up and he asked for his wife Vashti to be brought and they said, I'm sorry, but uh, she's not in this world anymore. And he started to ask what happened and he was very upset that uh, she was executed, right? She re he really did, she was really beautiful and she re he really did want her as the queen and he was very sad and depressed. <clears throat> so the fact that he did kill her was the first step in the story where we see, we'll, we'll see um, you know, that something not regular happened. Source number four, chapter two in the Megillah. The king's attendants advised the king was sad that he doesn't have his wife. Now this happened in the third year of his kingdom. The third year of his kingdom, that's when this party happened. And the source number four, the king's attendants advised, let beautiful virgin girls be sought for the king and let the girl who finds favor in the king's eyes become queen in Vashti's stead. So let's look for a new queen, a beautiful queen that will make the, the king happy. The plan pleased the king and messengers, agents were sent out throughout the 127 provinces under Ahasuerus' rule to find the most beautiful girl. And all, the, and all the beautiful girls were brought to the palace and they, um, they were, you know, they would uh, prepare for, six, set, uh, for 12 months. They would prepare their bodies and with all kinds of perfumes and all kinds of things. And every night, another girl was led into the king. But for four years, this went on every night. And the king has not found who he was looking for. It actually says that he had an uh, image of Vashti painted up on the wall. And he would compare every girl if she was as beautiful as Vashti. Because Vashti really was beautiful. And he, ne he did not find the right girl. You can imagine all the girls from all over were, were uh, anxious to be chosen as the queen. But Esther, in the middle of Source 4, Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus to his palace, and the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won his favor and kindness more than all the virgins. He placed the royal crown on her head and made her queen. Esther was a Jewish girl, We'll see in a second a little more about her. She was taken. What does taken mean? She didn't go. Many girls volunteered. Here, I'm at the palace. Take me in. Let me be let in to spend some time with the king. Maybe I will find favor in his eyes. Now, Esther was a Jewish girl. She was taken by force. She was taken by the king. They didn't have a choice. That was the rule. The king said, you don't have a choice here. You know, if the king wants you, then you have to come. And she was taken by force to the palace, and the king loved Esther more than anyone, more than any of the other women, and made her queen. By the way, how old do you think Esther was? Well, Everyone thinks 40. of her as a young girl. 40. She was 40, there's different opinions, 40, 75, or 80. <laughs> That's another part of the story here, that the fact that Ahasuerus actually loved her, and th that she looked so beautiful, and more beautiful than Vashti, that is another... Um, so, interesting parts. Yes. So how? I mean, you, 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 see, it said three different ones. So, we, so which one is the right the age? Different opinions. Who knows? Oh, nobody knows. Yeah, but she definitely wasn't twelve. And we'll see in a second. So she we'll see. She was twelve. <laughs> what? Was she so pretty that she looked like she was twelve? That's possible. I mean, like eighty-year-old with like twelve. I don't know. It doesn't say that she looked like twelve. Look at Hanukkah. Look at Hanukkah. <laughs> Source number five. <clears throat> so who was who was this Esther? Source number five. The Megillah tells us there was a Jewish man in Shushan, the capital, whose name was Mordechai. He raised his cousin Esther, for she had neither father nor mother. Talmud tells us that 
her father died when her mother was expecting her, and her mother died at childbirth. She did not live with any of her parents even for one day. And Mordechai was her cousin. Mordechai's father was Shimi, a man named Shimi. No, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Yair, his grandfather was Shimi. His father's name was Yair. Mordechai, the son of Yair. And Esther's father was Avichail. And I believe they were brothers. That's how they were cousins. Mordechai and Esther were cousins. And when Esther's parents died, Mordechai um, you know, adopted her. The girl, continuing in the second line of source, source 5, the girl was a beautiful form and beautiful visage. And when her father and mother died, Mordechai adopted her as his daughter. Esther did not divulge her race or ancestry, for Mordechai had instructed her not to tell. So Mordechai is living in Shushan with his cousin Esther, that he had you know, uh, adopted as a daughter. By the way, many sto Purim stories say that Mordechai was her uncle. Right? That is incorrect. It was her cousin. And initially, Mordechai hid Esther from the guards, but when the, when the decree came out that if a girl hides, you know, they, they will be taken by, they will, whoever, whoever hides a beautiful girl will be executed. So Mordechai had no choice, and she was taken. Esther was found and was taken to the palace against her will. She was a nice Jewish religious girl. And it actually says that you know, all the other girls would prepare for a month, for 12 months with all kinds of things. And she didn't ask for anything, no jewelry, no nothing. She wasn't interested in becoming the queen. She was taken there by force. And nonetheless, she found favor in the eyes of, Achash, of, of Achashverosh. But Esther did not divulge who she was. She did not tell the king or anyone that she was Jewish. Why? That's what Mordechai told her to do. But Why? So there are many answers given. But one is because Esther was a descendant of King Shaul, King Saul. She, has, she had royal blood. And if she would say who she is, then Achashverosh would for sure choose her when she comes to the palace. Because she's of royal blood. And Mordechai and Esther did not want Esther to marry the king. You know? Jewish girl has no business there. That was one of the ideas. The second thing was that Esther continued to keep up the religion in the palace. She would keep Shabbos. It says that for seven, um, she had seven maids. And this way she was able to keep Shabbos. Because, you know, if she had the same maid every day, then the maid would realize that every seventh day she is not working. She's not doing certain things. And that would rouse suspicion. But... You know, the king would not permit her to, to uh, keep up with her, with her traditions, with her heritage. But here, she had a maid every day, and the maid that came on Sunday came on Sunday, and the maid that came on every, every day of the week was another maid, and the maid that came on Shabbos thought whatever she does on Shabbos, that's probably what she does every day, so she didn't see the difference. Right? So, by keeping her identity a secret, she was able to continue secretly doing, following the, the traditions of the Torah. Either way, she ends up in the palace and she's queen. And it took four years. The third year of, Ashti, of his reign, of his kingdom, Vashti was executed. Four years later, uh, the Talmud actually says that one of the good things of this king was that he took his time finding his wife, a new wife. Four years, he dated a lot of girls. Finally, he found Esther in the seventh year of his kingdom and she became the queen. Okay, next part of the story. Source number six. Big Tan and Teresh. Two of the king's guards became angry and planned to assassinate King Achashverosh. So after Esther became the queen, she didn't tell the king that she's Jewish, but she told the king, you know, why, why are you, uh, you know, look at your advisors, you had advisors, um, the previous kings, she said, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar and all the previous kings, they always had Jewish advisors, which is true. Even the, the one that destroyed the first temple, he, he had a Jewish advisor, Daniel the prophet. And there were other non-Jewish kings that always had Jewish advisors. So she advised Achashverosh, not saying that she's Jewish, but, you know, you should have a Jewish advisor. So she said, maybe you know someone? And she said, yes, there's this man Mordechai, the leader of the Jews, a wise man. 
he should be one of your advisors. And the king appointed Mordechai to sit at the king's palace, the king's gate, as one of his ministers. So Mordechai is at the palace, let's, uh, and he, he, he overhears Big Tan and Teresh, these two of the king's guards who were very jealous that the king... Uh, appointed this Mordechai and they plan to assassinate King Ahasuerus by putting poison in his drink. The matter became known to Mordechai and he informed Queen Esther. Esther then informed the king of it in Mordechai's name. The two were hanged, they, they, were, they were caught, they, they gave the water to the king to drink, the king said spill it out and they, he saw the, you know, the poison in there. The two were hanged on the gallows. It was then recorded in the book of Chronicles that Mordechai saved the king's life. How exactly did Mordechai overhear what they were saying? They were actually talking a foreign language. They were talking Torsi. Mordechai knew the language. Very good. He obviously knew the language. How did he know the language? He knew many languages. He knew many languages. Why did he know so many languages? Was he, uh, he finished learning the whole Torah? He had extra time on his hands? So if you look in source 7, the Talmud explains it to us. The Sanhedrin, and Mordechai was a member of the high court. And the law is, source 7, they must know all 70 languages in order that the Sanhedrin will not need to hear testimony from the mouth of a translator in a case where a witness speaks a different language. In the court, there are different witnesses, and sometimes a witness will not know that the regular language spoken by the by the by the Bethin, by the court and therefore they have to be somewhat fluent in all the languages so they should be able to hear directly from the witness not through a translator because some things can get lost in the translation or is not translating properly so Mordechai though these two guards didn't dream that this rabbi this old outdated guy will know What's, you know, so many languages, but he did, and that way he was able to over, you know, to eat, to, um, to listen to what they were saying and save the king's life. Okay. Now it gets more exciting. So far we have Vashti is executed, Esther is chosen as the king, as the queen, and Mordechai saves the king's life. It's recorded in the book of Chronicles. Source number eight. Ahasuerus was so happy with his new queen, he was very thankful to Haman, Haman, because, because of him, Vashti was executed, and he found even a more beautiful queen. So King Ahasuerus, the Megillah tells us in chapter 3, source 8, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman and placed his seat above all his fellow ministers. All the king's servants at the king's gate kneeled and bowed before Haman, but Mordechai, being at the king's gate, would not kneel or bow. You can imagine it didn't make Haman so happy. Haman sought to annihilate all of the Jews, Mordechai's people, throughout Ahasuerus' entire kingdom. Because the minister, the guards, told Haman, hey, look at this Jew. He's not bowing to you. And actually, Haman didn't notice at first. It says Haman was so arrogant that he walked in the street with his nose up in the air. He didn't even see Mordechai not bowing to him. And the guards had to tell him, hey, look down. And he looked down and he saw Mordechai and he said, why won't you bow? And he said, I'm a Jew. And Haman would wear an uh, wear, wear, uh, idol on his, you know, uh, on, on his like a necklace and all over him. He had all kinds of idols. And Mordechai wouldn't bow to an idol being a Jew. And when he heard that, he said, I'm not just going to kill Mordechai. He wanted to annihilate all of the Jewish people. And he convinced King Ahasuerus about it. And he gave him a signet ring and he says, do as you wish with these people. Letters were sent with couriers to annihilate, murder, and destroy all of the Jews, young and old, children and women, on one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions. Let's think a second about this decree. Haman is second in command. He was promoted up. Haman Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus is the ruler of the whole world, pretty much. 127 provinces, everywhere where Jews lived. There was this decree, you know, this decree happened actually during Pesach, right before Pesach. But the decree was that in an 11th month, 11 months time, on the 13th day of the month of Adar, on this one day, everyone and all the people, all the citizens of these provinces should kill their Jewish neighbors and plunder their possessions. You know why that was important? Because if the possessions went to the king, <laughs> no one would be that interested in killing them. 
because they had permission to plunder their possessions, so everyone is happy to go kill their neighbors so they can take all their wealth, take all of their things. The Jews were very successful in exile. They were rich, many of them. So think of the severity of this. And that's where the name Purim comes from, because Haman was very superstitious. He, didn't, he wanted this decree to go through really well. So he chose, he also wanted to do it on one day, because if you give more time, then the Jews can escape to other places, you know, they can run around. But if it's on one day, then it's it, they have nowhere to go. So he drew lots. He wanted to have a very lucky day, a lucky month. And he chose the month of Adar. It says that he chose uh, the first month, Nisan. And the, his son told him, no, Nisan is a very auspicious time for the Jews. That's the, the month that they left Egypt. And every month he went, oh, this holiday, that holiday. And when it came to the month of Adar, he said, this is a good month. Because in this month, Moses died. Little did he know that Moses was also born on the same day, the Talmud says. And that is a very special day. But either way, that's where it comes Purim. He drew lots to kill the Jewish people. And think of it, it was the most severe decree against the Jewish people. Never in history was there ever a time when all of the Jewish people, men, women, and children, were at risk of being annihilated in one day with nowhere to escape, nowhere to hide. Any time when Jews, you know, Jews were were uh, killed and, and uh, many times. But even, let's say, in recent history, you know, there were Jews in, in Europe. And although Hitler, which starts with an H, like Haman, the, he was the most recent Haman, he wanted to kill every Jew, but right, the, the millions of Jews living in Europe were directly under his you know, his watch. But there were Jews in America, there were Jews in Israel, which at a certain point, uh, I guess during the war, was, was safe. But here, there were Jews everywhere, in all of his provinces, and all of the Jews were at risk of being annihilated. So what was the Jews' response? Source number nine. Why was annihilation decreed upon the Jews of that generation? The Talmud says, why do the Jews deserve such a decree to be annihilated? What did they do so wrong? The Talmud says, because they enjoyed the feast of the wicked king Ahasuerus. What does that mean? We said before in Source 2 that Ahasuerus made a party, right, for seven days. And the Jews were invited and the Jews, well, some Jews went. So the Talmud says, why, did they, why was it decreed upon them to be annihilated? Because they enjoyed the feast of the wicked king Ahasuerus. So no, they, they enjoyed, they enjoyed not, the party. Not kosher food? No. <laughs> not that the food is not kosher. Food is kosher. The problem is they, they enjoyed the, the utensils were made from the base of Mikdash. That's the problem. Okay. So they're used from the base of Mikdash. Is that such a severe sin? And maybe, who, where does it say that the Jews used the utensils? It says Ahasuerus showed them off. He showed them the, the vessels. The fact that they ate non-kosher, not necessarily. It says there that, that Mordechai was put in charge uh, by the party and there was kosher food available as well. And eating non-kosher may be a sin, but it doesn't, you know, it's not a reason why all the Jews should be annihilated. This man on the plane is <clears throat> traveling and uh, a stewardess taps him on the back and shoulder and he says, she, she says, um, it's time for dinner. So, you know, would you like to have some dinner? So the man says, well, what are my choices? She says, you have two choices, yes or no. <laughs> <laughs> they went to this party, they went to this dinner why is that such a terrible sin that they did deserve to be annihilated? So let's get back to that soon. But there's this decree to be annihilated. What was the Jewish people's response? Source 10, the Midrash tells us, Mordechai heard of this decree. Mordechai gathered 22,000 Jewish children, prayed with them and taught them Torah. What was the first thing, the first response? 
They prayed together. They taught them Torah. They prayed to God. They repented. Because um, suddenly Haman arrived and threatened to harm the children. The children declared, we shall stay with Mordechai no matter what. The children were inspired to, to continue praying and, and uh, studying Torah with Mordechai. That was the first response of Mordechai and all of the Jewish people. But then, source 11, Mordechai sent a messenger to Esther to instruct her to go to the king, to besiege him, and to plead with him on behalf of her nation. So, so remember, this is the 12th year, so the, the party was in the third year. Esther was chosen as the queen in the seventh year. It took time until this decree came about. Haman was promoted, and this was in the 12th year of, of Haman, of Ahasuerus' uh, kingdom. Esther's already in the palace for five years she's the queen and she still never revealed to the king her people that she's jewish and mordechai tells esther now is your time there's a decree against all the jewish people you have to go to the king beseech him and to plead with him on behalf you know of your nation esther told hatach hatach was the messenger that was sent to relate to mordechai how can I go to the king? Any man or woman who goes to the king and enters the inner courtyard without being summoned, his is but one verdict, execution. Except for the person to whom the king extends his golden scepter, only he shall live. It was, it was, you know, the kings there were always scared of, of, um, of being assassinated. So there was this rule that no one's allowed to enter the king's chamber without permission, without being summoned. And Esther was said, I wasn't summoned to the king for, 40, for 30 days already. How can I just go to the king to s try to stop this decree? I wasn't summoned. And if I come without permission, there's one verdict. Execution. I'm, I'm risking my life. Source 12. So Mordechai says to relate to Esther, Who knows if it is not for just such a time that you reach this royal position. You think you're in the king's palace just by chance? Maybe this is the reason why God orchestrated that you should be chosen as the queen. And maybe that's why you reached this royal position. This is the time. This is why you're there. Maybe. Esther said to relate to Mordechai, If so, go and gather all the Jews who are in Shushan and fast for my sake. Do not eat, do not drink for three days, night and day. My maids and I shall also fast in the same way. Then I shall go to the king, though it is unlawful. And if I perish, I perish. Here we see the heroic act of Esther. She was ready to risk her life to go to the king to save her people. Here's another question. Esther is risking her life. She wants to win over the king's heart. She's, she wasn't summoned by the king. She's going, she's intruding in the king's privacy, coming in. The only thing that might get the king to let her live is if she's extremely charming and beautiful and the king won't want to execute her. So why would she fast for three days? I mean, fasting doesn't make you look extra beautiful. On the contrary. Hmm? <clears throat> no, actually, it could be because sometimes, you know, like there's like a bodybuilding competition. Uh, before the competition, they uh, uh, kind of try to, you know, not be skinny, but like they, they mm -hmm. don't drink as much. They like build and then they, they bodybuilding to, to, to make it, their body like m more uh, like tone and everything. Yeah. So, so in, in this sense, yes. I mean, if you I don't know, like for three days, but at least they uh, try to. Um, that's intermittent fasting. That's they, not actually fasting. No, but uh, I don't know if it's not eating or drinking for three days. Person kind of looks really weak. <laughs> Dehydrated. Right. Yeah, but again, I mean, in, 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 in those. Uh, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely um, questionable. Maybe, you know, wh why? Why is it so important to fast for three days and, <clears throat> you know, until she's going into the, to the king? Now, let's, let's stop here a little on the story and uh, analyze Esther's plan of action. 
She's, she's risking her life to go into the king. And she says, if I perish, I perish. So the simple understanding is, right? The king, you're not allowed, if you weren't summoned, you're not allowed in. And she might be executed. But she's ready to do that to try to save her people. Let's take a look at what the Talmud tells us about Esther and Mordechai. Source 13. Do not read the verse literally as for a daughter. The Megillah said, we, looked, we had in source uh, number 5, that Mordechai adopted her as a daughter. In Hebrew, it's called a bas. A bat, like a bat mitzvah. Excuse me. So the Talmud says, don't read it bat, but rather read it as for a home. Bayit. Bayit means a house, a home. He took her as a house. He took her as a home. Which means that he took her as a wife. He married her. The woman is referred to as the home, the mainstay of the home, the one that takes care of the home. In the Talmud, Talmudic uh, terms, the woman many times is referred to as the one who takes care of the home. So Mordechai actually married Esther. Esther and Mordechai were married. She was a married woman. And even though the, the, the guard said only uh, the virgin girl should be brought for the king, but she was so beautiful that she was taken to the king. And she didn't have a choice in the matter. So now, according to Jewish law, a married woman who... <clears throat> who um, cohabits, cohabits, you know, has relations with another man. So it depends. If she is raped, it was done against her will, so then she can go back to her husband to live with her husband. But if she willingly had relations with another man while, being while she was married, then she is forbidden to her husband. That's the Jewish law. That's the halacha. Obviously, in... Uh, that's the basic law. How it, you know, we have to, it has to be certain ways to prove it and so on. But that's the halacha. So now Esther says like this. Until now, I was coerced to cohabit with him. But now I will do, I will do so willingly. As I am lost to my father's house, so will I be lost to you. For from now on that I am submitting willingly, I will be forbidden to you. You can understand that when Esther submits herself to come to the king's chamber, it wasn't just to have a conversation with him, it was to be physically intimate with him, and thereby she is willingly submitting herself to a sin. Till now, for the past five years, she only came to the king when she was summoned. When the king summoned her to come, she had no choice, so she came. But she always, in the back of her mind, deep in her heart, she always wished for the day that she will be freed from the palace and be able to be reunited with her husband, her cousin, Mordechai, who was her husband. But now that she, Mordechai is telling her, you go to the king, go on your own uh, volition, go and to the king and be with the king and try to convince the king to stop this decree. She is willingly su submitting herself to the king that equals, that means that she will from now on be forbidden to her husband Mordechai. Because once she willingly has relations with another man while she is married, then she is forbidden forever to her husband Mordechai. And here we see the heroic act, the self-sacrifice of Queen Esther for her people. Not only is she risking her physical life, because maybe the king will have her executed for entering without permission, she is... She is giving up her spiritual life, if you can say, because this is, she's going willingly, and also her whole future with her, her dreams are being shattered to be ever to be able to live together again with Mordechai. But this was Esther. She wasn't thinking about herself. She was thinking about her people by the encouragement of Mordechai. That's the first lesson we learned from Queen Esther. Source 14. Let's get back to answer some of our questions before we continue the story. The problem was not so much their participation in the feast. Before we, let's, just ask, let's just clarify this. What was Mordechai and Esther's first reaction to the, to the decree? Seemingly, there's a very simple solution. 
is the king man, Haiman made a decree to annihilate all the Jewish people. So what do you have to do? Esther is the wife. Go to the king and tell him to annihilate, to stop the decree. What did Mordechai do? He gathered 22,000 children and, and all the Jewish people. They, the Talmud says they went to the synagogues and the houses of worship and they prayed and they repented and they, right? And what did Esther say? You should fast. What are you fasting? Go to, go to the king and take care of the decree. So here we see, here we see what Esther had in mind. Source 14. The problem was not so much their participation in the feast. The problem was that they enjoyed the feast. What does the Talmud say? Why did the Jews de deserve to be annihilated? Not because, oh, well, it's already on the phone. Let's, uh, let's do this a little faster. Why did the Jews de de deserve to be annihilated? Not because they ate, it doesn't say they ate from the, from the feast. It says they enjoyed the feast. And that's very precise. They enjoyed the feast. If you have to go to the party, go to the party. You have to respect the king, respect the king. But this, that they enjoyed the king, what did the feast, what does that mean? With the royal kosher menu in hand, the exiled Jew felt no longer needed, felt he no longer needed God for his survival. He was very comfortable. Look, even the king invites us to his palace and is serving us kosher. They felt that they were secure, they were safe in the hands of Ahasuerus. This is before the decree, right? When the party was thrown. The decree of annihilation was not a punishment. Of course, everything that happens here is a result of what happens up above. Nothing happens here without God's permission. So the decree of annihilation was not a punishment, but a consequence of this attitude. Putting his faith in mortals, the Jew denied his supernatural status. The status of a nation whose very survival belies in laws of history. The Jew was now lonely and vulnerable to the decrees of a mortal Ahasuerus. So, the way the Rebbe explains the story, the Talmud is not that the Jews deserve to die because they sinned, so this was their punishment. It wasn't a punishment. The fact that the Jewish people are around today being 0.2%, uh, 0.2% of the population in this world, they're not even 1%. There's 0.2% of the people in this world. And it always was like that. The Jewish people were a minority. The fact that we can survive and exist is supernatural. The fact that the Talmud says we're like a lamb surrounded by 70 wolves. All of the people, they want to destroy us. They, they're, they're, not our, they're not our friends. Unfortunately, recently, we're, we're seeing this more and more. So the fact that we're here is only due to God's extra you know, protection and supernatural uh, providence. So when the Jew has faith in God and knows that God is protecting them even in a supernatural way, then God reciprocates and that's how God takes care of the Jews. And once the Jews enjoy the feast, that means that they put their trust in a, in a, in a physical person, in a king. They put their, they enjoyed going to visit. Hey, he is our savior. They don't need God anymore. That brought about the consequence of such a decree. So what was, how do we take care of it? If that was the cause for the decree, how do we stop the decree? Source 15. So in his efforts to nullify the decree, Mordechai responded by calling upon the Jewish people to turn to God. He focused first on improving the spiritual condition of his people and only then did he employ natural means by asking Esther to approach the king because we know that nothing happens by chance. It's not just... Ahasuerus and Haman decided to kill the Jews. Obviously, this is something from above. This is a message from up on high. God is letting this happen. And the first thing we need to do is to improve, to strengthen our relationship with Hashem, to, re, um, to, 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 to place our trust in Hashem instead of, instead in, mor instead of in moral ki mortal kings. And that was Esther's approach as well, source 16. Esther knew that her pleading at the feet of a mortal king was merely a facade with which to disguise the divine miracle. The true vehicle of the salvation would be repentance and prayer. With her three-day fast, Esther rectified the error which has made the Jewish people vulnerable to Haman's decree in the first place. They had enjoyed the feast of the wicked Ahasuerus, a joy which demonstrated that they regarded their political position as the source of their security, <coughs> thereby forfeiting God's special providence over their fate. 
Esther took the very opposite approach, favoring the spiritual cause of the miracle over its material garment, even to the garment's detriment, even if she'll fast for three days and maybe she won't look so perfect. But she was demonstrating that at the end of the day, it's God who's going to save the day. And we have to make a vessel. We need to find some sort of natural means to do our part. But we know that it's Hashem who's running the show. Jewish people in Germany felt very secure up there, right? They would never believe such a thing can happen. But we have to place our trust in Hashem and know that ultimately Hashem is the one that protects the lamb from the 70 wolves. Source 17. The story continues. After three days of fasting, when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the courtyard, she found favor in his eyes. And that was a great miracle. At first, says Achashverosh was upset. He turned his head to the side. <clears throat> but a miracle occurred and suddenly she found favor in his eyes. The king extended to Esther the golden scepter. Esther said, if it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the feast that I have prepared for him. At the wine feast, the king said to Esther, what is your plea? It will be granted, it will be granted you. Esther replied and said, Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I shall prepare for them, and tomorrow I shall fulfill the king's biting, right? Bidding, Bidding sorry. <laughs> okay, here's another question. Why didn't Esther right away ask Achashverosh what to do uh, to save the Jews? Why did she say, to Come to the feast? And then she said, Come again to the feast tomorrow. And why did she invite Haman? Haman is the one that's making the problems. Well, according to what we just said, Esther recognized that the way to stop the decree was to enhance, to strengthen our relationship with Hashem. And she was waiting for a sign from heaven that their prayers were accepted, that, that the Jews' repentance was, was, was complete. And she didn't see a sign. So she said, come tomorrow. Let's make another party. Maybe meanwhile, I'll see some sort of sign from Hashem. And the reason why she invited Haman was in order to, that the Jews should hear that Haman was invited and their whole hope is that, oh, we have a sister in the, in the palace. She's going to take care of us. You know, we have Kushner or we have, who knows, uh, somebody there. But obviously, these are not people. These are, these are just pawns. These are, everything is in the hands of Hashem. And that's why Esther invited Haman to show the Jews, I'm inviting Haman, I'm friends with Haman, you better repent stronger. Obviously I didn't see a sign yet, that's not what's going to stop the decree, it's not me. There's something bigger over here. We have to strengthen our, our, our relationships, study more Torah, our mitzvahs, and become better people at our, uh, with Hashem. Haman left uh, the feast that day. And what does he see? He sees Mordechai. You can imagine uh, how upset he was. Here, the king is his best friend. Top, he's his top minister. And the queen invited him to feast with the king. And here's Mordechai. Let's him bow to him. A chutzpah. And he comes home. He's so upset. And he talks it over with his wife. His wife was Zeresh. Source 18, his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, have gallows, don't wait till 11 months to the 13th day of Adar to kill Mordechai and all the Jews. Have Mordechai, Mordechai is making you upset right now. Have gallows erected 50 cubits high and tomorrow tell the king to have Mordechai hanged on it right away. And the rest of the Jews await till the 13th of Adar. And Haman had 10 sons and they got busy building the gallows in the king's courtyard. Really tall gallows. And he's planning to come to the king to have, get permission from the king to hang Mordechai on the gallows. Source 19. That night. The night between the, the two parties, right? Hi, uh, Esther made a party with Esther, with Achashverosh and Haman. And this is that night, and the next party is going to be the next day. That night, source 19, the king's sleep was disturbed. Of all nights, suddenly the king couldn't sleep. What was exactly, what was he thinking? He was thinking, what's with this Esther, my queen? Why is she inviting Haman? Is there something going on between them? Are they plotting to kill me? Does she like him better than me? That night, the king's sleep was disturbed. He ordered that the book of records, the chronicles, be brought 
and exactly where it was open, you know, to read him some bedtime stories to have him fall asleep. Or the way the Talmud explains it, that he was thinking, where are my real friends? If Haman is trying, if Esther, they're plotting something against me, who is my real friends? If my top minister, if I'm suspicious of them, where are my real friends? And he starts thinking, maybe someone did a favor for me and I didn't repay them. So he tells the guards to bring the, bring the book of Chronicles. And it was found, another interesting thing, they opened up exactly to the page where it was found, written that Mordechai had informed on Big Tan and Teresh. And the king said, was he ever repaid for his, for his kindness of saving the king's life? And they said, no. And actually the guards weren't either fond of Mordechai, but whatever page they turned to, somehow this is the story that came up. And suddenly, it's getting late, getting early morning, and Haman finished the gallows. And while this is happening, Haman entered. And the king said to him, What should be done for a man whom the king wishes to honor? What do you think Haman said? Haman thought, Who would the king want to honor if not me? Right? So now Haman said, Let them bring a royal garment that the king has worn, and a horse upon which the king has ridden, and upon whose head the royal crown had been placed. And they shall be paraded throughout the streets of Shushan and proclaim that so shall be done to the man whom the king wishes to honor. And suddenly the king says to Amman, Hurry, take the garment and the horse just as you have said and do just so for Mordechai the Jew. Right? And Haman had no choice. He had to go to Mordechai. And Mordechai was sitting there in mourning. He was praying and he was wearing... Uh, you know, ashes on his head and his hair wasn't cut and Haman had to become a barber and clean him and, and dress him with these, um, you know, the king's garbs, garments. And Mordechai was so weak from fasting that he couldn't get up onto the horse. So Haman had to kneel down and Mordechai had to <laughs> step on him and Haman paraded throughout the city of Shushan Proclaiming, so shall be done to the man whom the king wishes to honor. And so although the decree was still in place, but at least um, there was some turn of, of, uh, of the events here, that Mordechai is being honored and Haman is being degraded. Haman is the one that is parading Mordechai around town and says that Haman has such a terrible day that he was also, his daughter was up on a high floor and she saw someone on the horse and somebody leading she was sure that her father Haman is up on the horse and Mordechai is probably leading Haman and she took a bucket of of uh, you know from the bathroom of waste and she poured it over his head and when Haman looked up his daughter saw that it was actually her father and she committed suicide she jumped out so she and, and died so Haman really had a bad day and as soon as he got home it was time for the next party Esther invited Haman and Nachashverosh for the second party so you can imagine what kind of mood Haman was in and how bad he smelled and he comes to the party and source 20 on the second day the king said to Esther what is your plea? Esther replied and said if I have found favor in your eyes, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me by my plea, for my people and I have been sold to be annihilated, killed, and destroyed. And Ahasuerus has no idea what she's talking about. He never thought that she's Jewish. King Ahasuerus spoke and said, Who is this? Who would want to kill my queen? Who is this? And which one is he that has the audacity to do such a thing? This evil Haman, Esther replied, right there Haman was sitting. Friend, end. Here, I'll do. That's what I'm trying to do. No, no, I'll do. This evil Haman has to replied, and right there, Harvona, one of the chamberlains, said. In addition, not just does he, does she want, does Haman want to kill the queen? There is the gallows that Haman erected for Mordechai, who spoke for the king's good. Hey, look, we just heard about Mordechai that was honored. That. Mordechai, Haman wants to kill him, standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. Hang him upon it, said the king. I mean, the Talmud says about King Ahasuerus that he killed his wife at the advice of his friend, and then he killed his friend at the advice of his wife because of Esther. But this is where the story turns, that everything came together, that Mordechai is being honored because that was read to the king that he was never, his kindness was never repaid, and Haman's downfall begins. Esther reveals that she is Jewish. 
and Haman is put to death. So tell me, which part of the story is the miracle of Purim? Which part? There's no part in the story that the sea splits, all of the firstborns died, the water turned to the Nile turned to blood, or the miracle of the oil lasting for eight days. There's no such miracles in Purim. The message of Purim is in the word Esther. Esther means hidden in Hebrew. Esther. Esther means hidden. Megillah's Esther. Megillah could also mean, besides the scroll, Megillah can mean to reveal. Gilui. Legalot. In Hebrew means to reveal. Excuse me. Megillah's Esther. The Megillah of Esther. The revealing of what's hidden. In the story of the Megillah, the story of Esther, God's name is hidden. God's name is not mentioned because we, one can say, I don't see God's hand. Right? At any point in the story, the story took place over 10 years. Which part do I see? The splitting of the sea. I say, oh, I see God. There's a miracle. Supernatural. Something happened. Right? The Megillah teaches us that every single day, every single thing that happens, there's God hidden behind it. There's someone behind the mask of the children dressing up. There's something behind the mask. Something which can seem terrible. Esther being in the palace, she was very unhappy. She didn't want to be with her. She wanted to be with her husband Mordechai. But every piece of the story, every piece in the puzzle together makes something up, makes up a story. The fact that Ahasuerus killed his wife Vashti, even though she, you know, he loved her, that was, that was part of the plan. The fact that Esther was chosen after four years, even though, you know, that, that was part of the plan. The fact that Mordechai happened over to, to overhear that the two guards were plotting against the king, that was part of the plan. The fact that, that, uh, that the king accepted Esther, uh, uh, even though she, had, she was not summoned to the king, that was part of it. And the fact that the king couldn't fall asleep exactly that night, and the fact that they opened up to that page, and the fact that at the time, Harvona said, oh, the king, the, the Haman, every, you know, built the gallows and everything together, and Haman was put to death, all of the little parts make up a big puzzle. So sometimes you pick up one piece of the puzzle. You know, when Esther was the queen, queen so over five years, they didn't understand why is Esther in the palace. Until the twelfth year, they had this decree. So then, you know, they sort of, so, uh, Mordechai said, maybe that's the reason why she's there. But each piece in the puzzle, the fact that Mordechai over her two guards, uh, you know, it happened. But really, when we have the whole Megillah together, it reveals the hidden parts. It reveals that there's something deeper over here. And in our lives, even we're not living in Shushan, but in our lives, the same thing can happen. That there are different things that happen. Not always we understand exactly why and how it contributes to the whole picture. But when we zoom out a little bit, or Hashem who zooms out, who was zoomed out all the way up there, sees that every piece in our lives, there's Hashem behind the mask. So no, Hashem's name is not mentioned in the Megillah because we don't see any open miracles. But Hashem is there. Hashem is there at every step of the way, orchestrating a salvation for the Jewish people, even years in advance. And that's the idea of Hamantashen. Hamantashen, the simple reason is, it's not Hamantashen, it's called Montashen. Mon in Yiddish means poppy seeds. And tashin means like cookies with a, with a, a tash means like a pocket. So the, the way they make the, the hamatash, it was they make a dough and the, in the pocket it would usually be covered up like a, like a pocket inside was the mon, the poppy seeds, which was very sweet, like the mon in the desert, the mana. That's a simple reason. And there was a way of celebration. They would make these cookies. Somehow from mon tashin came hamantashin. But either way, we can say that the hamantashin symbolizes this exact idea that there is on the outside, it can look hard, it can look crusty. On the inside is the sweets. There is a sweet a God that is orchestrating. Everything is for our good. Everything that happens to us, ultimately, there's a purpose and there is, there is a reason. And Source 21 yeah, do we answer the, yeah, we answer the questions. Source 21, that how do we celebrate Purim? The Megillah tells us, make them days of feasting, rejoicing, sending food portions one to another, and giving gifts to the poor. There are four special mitzvahs on Purim. We read the Megillah. We send gifts of food to each other, at least to one person. We give charity, and we have a feast. And we'll conclude with a short story of... Um, 
It was a family in Babroysk. Where is Babroysk? Babroysk. Where is that? Belarusia. Yeah, very famous city. A Jewish city, right? So there was a couple there, Zusha and Nechama Margolin. And Zusha was drafted in the, during the Second World War into the Red Army for many years. His wife, uh, you know, was war years, was years of hunger. She took her, there are three children, or 10, 11, uh, seven, you know, young kids, two girls and a younger boy. It, she took them to Samarkand, Uzbekistan, to uh, like many uh, refugees that run away from the front of the, of the war. Not the Jewish people. Yeah. And there was a time of hunger, and any food that Nechama could get hold of, she gave to her children. But eventually, after giving all the food to her children, she passed away from hunger, and her children were left. After some time, the younger boy passed away, and there were just these two girls left. And two girls without, without parents, the father was in the army, and the mother passed, so they put them in an orphanage, in a, you know, uh, orphanage. And after the war ended, the administrator, they, they, she, they called the girls over, so it was a few years later. You can imagine the girls were little kids, didn't remember much of who, who they were. And they said, they asked the girl, do you have any address of any relatives that we can inform them that you're still alive? And they'll come get you. If you don't have any ad, you don't know one to write to, then you'll stay here, you know, and you'll grow up in the communist uh, orphanage. And how are they supposed to remember? They're thinking and thinking. And suddenly, one of the girls, her name was uh, Riva, she remembered an address of a cousin in Leningrad, St. Petersburg. His name was uh, Yaakov Yosef Raskin. How does she remember? She remembered that years before, when she was a little kid, every year before Pesach, her mother would send, this is her uncle in Leningrad, so her mother was sent to her brother, her uncle, uh, a package of schmaltz. You know schmaltz is? Yeah. For Pesach, right? So some people don't use oil. They don't want to use processed oil for Pesach. So they use schmaltz. So she would send it by mail. And one time she took her, this girl with her to the post office and she packaged everything and it was dripping. And the, 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 you know, the man over there would not send it off. He said, we can't send like this, it's dripping. And she was arguing with him, with him back and forth. And he said, no, you have to go bring a better package. So, so she left the girl there in the post office. And the mother went home. She had to go all the way back home. It took like two hours. So she came back with a better bag, a better box. And, and while she was there in the post office for those two hours, she had nothing to do. So she studied the address, the label that was on the package. And for, for, for two hours, you know, she was upset. Why is she here? She had nothing to do. But somehow that address was ingrained in her memory and she was able to contact that uncle and she was able to be saved. So sometimes we never know a piece in the puzzle. Story?